Section 6 of His Family. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by James Carson. His Family by Ernest Poole. But that winter there was more in the house than Deborah's big family. Though at times Roger felt it surging in with its crude, immense vitality, there were other times when it was not so, and the lives of his other two daughters attracted his attention, for both were back again in town. Laura and her husband had returned from abroad in October, and in a small but expensive apartment in a huge new building facing on Park Avenue, they had gaily started the career of their own little family, or menage, as Laura called it. This word had stuck in Roger's mind, for he had a suspicion that a menage was no place for babies. Grimly, when he went there first to be shown the new home by its mistress, he looked about him for a room which might be made a nursery, but no such room was in evidence. We decided to have no guest room, he heard Laura say to Deborah, and glancing at his daughter then, sleek and smiling and demure, in her tea-gown fresh from Paris, Roger darkly told himself that a child would be an unwelcome guest. The whole place was as compact and sparkling as a jewel-box. The bedchamber was luxurious, with a gorgeous bath adjoining and a dressing-room for Harold. "'And look at this love of a closet,' said Laura to Deborah, eagerly. "'Isn't it simply enormous?' As Deborah looked, her father did too, and his eye was met by an array of shimmering apparel which made him draw back almost with a start. They found Harold in the pantry. Their Jap, it appeared, was a marvellous cook and did the catering as well, so that Laura rarely troubled herself to order so much as a single meal. But her husband had for many years been famous for his cocktails, and although the Jap did everything else, Hal had kept this in his own hands. I thought this much of the housekeeping ought to remain in the family, he said. Roger did not like this joke. But later, when he had imbibed the delicious concoction Harold had made, and had eaten the dinner created by that Japanese artist of theirs, his irritation subsided. They barely know we're here, he thought. They're both in love up to their ears. Despite their genial attempts to be hospitable and friendly, Time and again he saw their glances meet in an intimate, gleaming manner which made him rather uncomfortable. But where was the harm, he asked himself. They were married all right, weren't they? Still, somehow, somehow... No, by George, he didn't like it, he didn't approve. The whole affair was decidedly mixing. Roger went away vaguely uneasy, and he felt that Deborah was even more disturbed than himself. These two, she remarked to her father, are so fearfully wrapped up in each other it makes me afraid. Oh, it's all right, I suppose, and I wouldn't for worlds try to interfere, but I can't help feeling somehow that no two people, with such an abundance of youth and money and happiness, have the right to be so amazingly selfish. They ought to have children, Roger said. But look at Edith, his daughter rejoined. She hasn't a single interest that I can find outside her home. It seems to have swallowed her body and soul. A frowning look of perplexity swept over Deborah's mobile face, and with a whimsical sigh she exclaimed, Oh, this queer business of families! 
In December there was a little crash. Late one evening Laura came bursting in upon them in a perfect tantrum, every nerve in her lithe body tense, her full lips visibly quivering, her voice unsteady, and her big black eyes aflame with rage. She was jealous of her husband and that nasty little cat. Roger learned no more about it, for Deborah motioned him out of the room. He heard their two voices talk on and on, until Laura slowly quieted down. Soon afterwards she left the house and Deborah came in to him. "'She's gone home, eh?' asked Roger. "'Yes, she has, poor silly child. She said at first she had come here to stay.' "'By George,' he said, "'as bad as that.' "'Of course it isn't as bad as that,' Deborah cried impatiently. "'She just built and built on silly suspicions, "'and let herself get all worked up. "'I don't see what they're coming to.' "'For a few moments nothing was said. "'It's so unnatural,' she exclaimed. "'Men and women weren't made to live like that.' "'Roger scowled into his newspaper. "'Better leave em alone,' he admonished her. "'You can't help. "'They're not your kind.' Don't you mix into this affair. But Deborah did. She remembered that her sister had once shown quite a talent for amateur theatricals, and to give Laura something to do, Deborah persuaded her to take a dramatic club in her school. And Laura, rather to Roger's surprise, became an enthusiast down there. She worked like a slave at rehearsals, and upon the costumes she spent money with a lavish hand. Moreover, instead of being annoyed, as Edith was, at Deborah's prominence in the press, Laura gloried in it, as though this radical sister of hers were a distinct social asset among her giddy friends uptown. For even Laura's friends, her father learned with astonishment, had acquired quite an appetite for men and women with ideas, the more radical, the better. But the way Laura used this word at times made Roger's blood run cold. She was vivid in her approval of her sister's whole idea as a scheme of wholesale motherhood which would give a perfectly glorious jolt to the old-fashioned home with its overworked mothers who let their children absorb their days. As though having children and bringing them up, she disdainfully declared, was something every woman must do, whether she happens to like it or not, at the cost of any real growth of her own and smilingly she hinted at impending radical changes in the whole relation of marriage of which she was hearing in detail at a series of lectures to young wives delivered on thursday mornings in a hotel ballroom what the devil was getting into this town roger frowned his deep dislike here was laura with her chicken's mind blithely taking her sister's thoughts and turning them topsy-turvy to make for herself a view of life which fitted like a white kid glove her small and elegant menage and although her father had only inklings of it all he had quite enough to make him irate at this uncanny interplay of influences in his family why couldn't the girls leave each other alone early in the winter edith too had entered in it had taken either just one glance into the bride's apartment to grasp Laura's whole scheme of existence. Selfish, indulgent, and abnormal was the way she described it. She and Bruce were dining with Roger that night. I wash my hands of the whole affair, continued Edith curtly. So long as she doesn't want my help, as she has plainly made me feel, I certainly shan't stand in her way. 
"'You're absolutely right,' said her father. "'Stick to it,' said Bruce approvingly. But Edith did not stick to it. In her case, too, as the weeks wore on, those subtle family ties took hold and made her feel the least she could do was to keep up appearances. So she and Bruce dined with the bride and groom, and in turn had them to dinner. And these dinners, as Bruce confided to Roger, were occasions no man could forget. They come only about once a month, he said in a tone of pathos, but it seems as though barely a week had gone by when either says to me again, we're dining with Laura and Hal tonight. Well, and we dine. Young Sloane is not a bad sort of chap, works hard downtown and worships his wife. The way he lives, well, it isn't mine, and mine isn't his, and we both let it go at that. But the women can't, they haven't it in them. Each sits with her own way of life in her lap. You can't see it over the tablecloth, but, my God, how you feel it. The worst of it is, he ended, that after one of these terrible meals, each woman is more set than before in her own way of living. Not that I don't like Edith's way, her husband added hastily. Edith also disapproved of the fast-increasing publicity which Deborah was getting. I may be very old-fashioned, she remarked to her father, but I can't get used to this idea that a woman's place is in headlines, and I think it's rather hard on you, the use she's making of your house. One Friday night when she came to play chess, she found her father in the midst of a boisterous special meeting of his club of Italian boys. It had been postponed from the evening before, and though Roger overcome with dismay at having forgotten Edith's night, apologized profusely, the time-honored weekly game took place no more from that day on. Edith's pretty sore, said Bruce, who dropped in soon afterwards. She says Deborah has made your house into an annex to her school. Roger smoked in silence. His whole family was about his ears. My boy, he muttered earnestly, you and I must stick together. We sure must, agreed his son-in-law, and what's more, if we're to keep the peace, we've got to try to put some punch into Deborah's so-called love affair. She ought to get married and settle down. Yes, said Roger, dubiously, only let's keep it to ourselves. No chance of that, was the cheerful reply. You can't keep Edith out of it. It would only make trouble in my family. Roger gave him a pitying look and said, Then, for the Lord's sake, let her in. So they took Edith into their counsels, and she gave them an indulgent smile. Suppose you leave this to me, she commanded. Don't you think I've been using my eyes? There's no earthly use in stepping in now, for Deborah has lost her head. She sees herself a great new woman with a career. But wait till the present flare-up subsides, till the newspapers all drop her, and she is thoroughly tired out. Until then, remember, we keep our hands off. Do you think you can? asked Roger, with a little glimmer of hope. I? she retorted. Most certainly. I mean to leave her alone, absolutely, until she comes to me herself. When she does, we'll know it's time to begin. I'm afraid Edith is heard about something, said Deborah to her father, about a month after this little talk. She hasn't been near us for over three weeks. Let her be, said Roger in alarm. I mean, he hastily added, why can't you let Edith come when she likes? There's nothing the matter. It's simply her children. They take up all her time. 
No, said Deborah calmly. It's I. She as good as told me so last month. She thinks I've become a perfect fanatic, without a spare moment or thought for my family. Oh, my family, Roger groaned. I tell you, Deborah, you're wrong. Edith's children are probably sick in bed. Then I'll go and see, she answered. Something has happened to Deborah, Edith informed him blithely over the telephone the next night. Has, hey? grunted Roger. Yes, she was here to see me today, and something has happened. She's changing fast. I felt it in all kinds of ways. She was just as dear as she could be, and lonely, as though she were feeling her age. I really think we can do something now. All right, let's do something, Roger growled. And Edith began to do something. Her hostility to her sister had completely disappeared. In its place was a friendly affection, an evident desire to please. She even drew Laura into the secret, and there was a gathering of the clan. There were consultations in Roger's den. Deborah is to get married. The feeling of it crept through the house. Nothing was said to her, of course, but Deborah was made to feel that her two sisters had drawn close, and their influence upon her choice was more deep and subtle than she knew. For although Roger's family had split so wide apart, between his three daughters there were still mysterious bonds reaching far back into nursery days, and Deborah, in deciding whether to marry Alan Baird, was affected more than she was aware by the married lives of her sisters. All she had seen in Laura's menage, all that she had ever observed in Edith's growing family, kept rising from time to time in her thoughts, as she vaguely tried to picture herself a wife and the mother of children. So the family, with those subtle bonds from the past, began to press steadily closer and closer around this one unmarried daughter, and help her to make up her mind. CHAPTER Seventeen. But she did not appear to care to be helped, nor did Alan. He rarely came to the house, and he went to Edith's not at all. He was even absent from her Christmas tree for the children, a jolly little festivity which neither he nor Deborah had missed in years. "'What has gotten into him?' Roger asked, and shortly after Christmas he called the fellow up on the phone. "'Drop in for dinner tonight,' he urged, and he added distinctly, "'I'm alone.' "'Are you?' "'I'll be glad to.' "'Thank you, Baird. I want your advice.' And as he hung up the receiver he said, "'Now then,' to himself, in a tone of firm decision. But later, as the day wore on, he cursed himself for what he had done. "'Don't it beat the devil,' he thought, "'how I'm always putting my foot in it.' And when Baird came into the room that night he loomed to Roger's anxious eye, if anything taller than before. But his manner was so easy, his gruff voice so natural, and he seemed to take this little party of two so quietly as a matter of course, that Roger was soon reassured, and at table he and Alan got on even better than before. Baird talked of his life as a student in Vienna, Bonn, and Edinburgh, and of his first struggles in New York. His talk was full of human bits, some tragic, more amusing, and Roger's liking for the man increased with every told story. I asked you here, he bluntly began, when they had gone to the study to smoke, to talk to you about Deborah. Baird gave him a friendly look. All right, let's talk about her. 
"'It strikes me you were right last year,' said Roger, speaking slowly. "'She's already showing the strain of her work. "'She don't look to me as strong as she was.' "'She looks to me stronger,' Alan replied. "'You know, people fool doctors now and then, "'and she seems to have taken a fresh start. "'I feel she may go on for years.' Roger was silent a moment, chagrined and disappointed. "'Have you had a good chance to watch her?' he asked. "'Yes, and I'm watching her still,' said Baird. "'I see her down there at the school. She tells me you've been there yourself.' "'Yes,' said Roger determinedly, "'and I mean to keep on going. I'm trying not to lose hold of her,' he added with harsh emphasis. Baird turned and frankly smiled at him. "'Then you have probably seen,' he replied, "'that to keep any hold at all on her, "'you must make up your mind, as I have done, "'that strength or no strength, "'this job of hers is going to be a life career. "'When a woman who has held a job without a break for eleven years "'can feel such a flame of enthusiasm, "'you can be pretty sure, I think, it is the deepest part of her. "'At least I feel that way,' he said, "'and I believe the only way to keep her,' For the present, anyhow, is to help her in her work. When Baird had gone, Roger found himself angry. I'm not in the habit, young man, he thought, of throwing my daughter at gentlemen's heads. If you feel as calm and contented as that, you can go to the devil. Far be it from me to lift a hand. In fact, as I come to think of it, you would probably make her a mighty poor husband. He worked himself into quite a rage. But an hour later, when he had subsided, hold on, he thought, am I right about this? Is the man as contented as he talks? No, sir, not for a minute he isn't. But what can he do? If he tried making love to Deborah, he'd simply be killing his chances. Not the slightest doubt in the world. She can't think of anything but her career. Yes, sir, when all's said and done, to marry a modern woman is no child's play. It means thought and care and A. Baird has made up his mind to it. He has made up his mind to marry her by playing a long waiting game. He's just slowly and quietly nosing his way into her school, because it's her life, and a mighty shrewd way of going about it. You don't need any help from me, my friend. All you need is to be let alone. In talks at home with Deborah, and in what he himself observed at school, Roger began to get inklings of A. Baird's long waiting game. He found that several months before, Alan had offered to start a free clinic for mothers and children in connection with the school, and that he alone had put it through with only the most reluctant aid and gratitude from Deborah, as though she dreaded something. Baird took countless hours from his busy uptown practice. He heard himself more than once, in fact, by neglecting rich patients to do this work. Where a sick or pregnant mother was too poor to carry out his advice, he followed her to her tenement home, sent one of his nurses to visit her, and even gave money when it was needed to ease the strain of her poverty until she should be well and strong. Soon scores of mothers of Deborah's children were singing the praises of Dr. Baird. Then he began coming to the house. I was right, thought Roger complacently. He laid in a stock of fine cigars and some good port and claret, too, and on evenings when Baird came to dine, Roger, by a genial glow and occasional jocular ironies, 
would endeavor to drag the talk away from clinics, adenoids, children's teeth, epidemics, and the new education. But no joke was so good that Deborah could not promptly match it with some amusing little thing which one of her children had said or done. For she had a mother's instinct for bragging fondly of her brood. It was deep, it was uncanny, this queer community motherhood. This poor devil, Roger thought, with a pitying glance at Baird, might just as well be marrying a widow with three thousand brats. But Baird did not seem the least dismayed. On the contrary, his assurance appeared to be deepening every week, and with it Deborah's air of alarm. For his clinic, as it swiftly grew, he secured financial backing from his rich women patients uptown, many of them childless, and only too ready to respond to the appeals he made to them. And one Saturday evening at the house, while dining with Roger and Deborah, he told of an offer he had had from a wealthy banker's widow to build a maternity hospital. He talked hungrily of all it could do in cooperation with the school. He said nothing of the obvious fact that it would require his whole time. But Roger thought of that at once, and by the expression on Deborah's face he saw she was thinking it too. He felt they wanted to be alone, so presently he left them. From his study he could hear their voices growing steadily more intense. Was it all about work? He could not tell. They've got working and living so mixed up, a man can't possibly tell them apart. Then his daughter was called to the telephone, and Alan came in to bid Roger good night, and his eyes showed an impatience he did not seem to care to hide. Well, inquired Roger, did you get Deborah's consent? To what? asked Alan sharply. To your acceptance, Roger answered, of the widow's might, Baird grinned. She couldn't help herself, he said. But she didn't seem to like it, eh? No, said Baird, she didn't. Roger had a dark suspicion. By the way, he asked in a casual tone, what's this philanthropic widow like? She's sixty-nine, Baird answered. Oh, said Roger. He smoked for a time and sagely added, my daughter's a queer woman, Baird. She's modern, very modern. But she's still a woman, you understand, and so she's jealous of her job. But A. Baird was in no joking mood. She's narrow, he said sternly. That's what's the matter with Deborah. She's so centered on her job she can't see anyone else's. She thinks I'm doing all this work solely in order to help her school. When, if she'd use some imagination and try to put herself in my shoes, she'd see the chance it's giving me. How do you mean? asked Roger, looking a bit bewildered. Why, said Baird, with an impatient fling of his hand, there are men in my line all over the country who'd leave home, wives, and children for the chance I've blundered onto here. A hospital fully equipped for research, a free hand, an opportunity which comes to one man in a million. But can she see it? Not at all. It's only an annex to her school. Yes, said Roger gravely. She's in a pretty unnatural state. I think she ought to get married, Baird. To his friendly and disarming twinkle, Baird replied with a rueful smile. You do, eh? he growled. Then tell her to plan her wedding to come before her funeral. As he rose to go, Roger took his hand. I'll tell her, he said. It's sound advice. Good night, my boy. I wish you luck. 
A few moments later he heard in the hall their brief good-nights to each other, and presently Deborah came in. She was not looking quite herself. "'Why are you eyeing me like that?' his daughter asked abruptly. "'Aren't you letting him do a good deal for you?' Deborah flushed a little. "'Yes, I am. I can't make him stop.' Her father hesitated. "'You could,' he said, "'if you wanted to. "'If you were sure,' he added slowly, "'that you didn't love him, and told him so.' He felt a little panic, for he thought he had gone too far. But his daughter only turned away, and restlessly moved about the room. At last she came to her father's chair. "'Hadn't you better leave this to me?' "'I had, my dear, I most certainly had. I was all wrong to mention it,' he answered very humbly. From this night on Baird changed his tack. Although soon busy with the plans for the hospital to be built at once, he said little about it to Deborah. Instead, he insisted on taking her off on little evening sprees uptown. "'Do you know what's the matter with both of us?' he said to her one evening. "'We've been getting too derned devoted to our jobs and our ideals. You're becoming a regular schoolmarm, and I'm getting to be a regular slave to every wretched little babe who takes it into his head.' to be born. We haven't one redeeming vice. And again he took up dancing. The first effort which he made, down at Deborah's school one evening, was a failure quite as dismal as his attempts of the previous year. But he did not appear in the least discouraged. He came to the house one Friday night. I knew I could learn to dance, he said, in spite of all your taunts and jibes. The little fiasco last Saturday night was perfectly awful, Deborah said did not discourage me in the least, he continued severely. I decided the only trouble with me was that I'm tall and I've got to bend, to learn to bend, tremendously. So I went to a lady professor and she saw the point at once. Since then I've had five lessons and I can foxtrot in my sleep. Tomorrow is Saturday night. Where shall we go? To the theatre. Good. We'll start with that. But the minute the play is over, we'll gallop off to the Plaza Grill, just as the music is in full swing. And we'll dance, she groaned, for hours, and when I come home I'll creep into bed so tired and sore in every limb that you'll sleep late Sunday morning. And a mighty good thing for you, too, if you ask my advice. I don't ask your advice. You're getting it, though, he said doggedly. If you're still to be a friend of mine, we'll dance at the Plaza tomorrow night, and well into the Sabbath. The principal of a public school dancing on the Sabbath. Suppose one of my friends should see us there. Your friends, he replied with a fine contempt, do not dance in the Plaza Grill. I'm the only roisterer you know. All right, she conceded grudgingly. I'll roister. Come and get me. But I'd much prefer, when the play is done, to come home and have milk and crackers here. Deborah, he said cheerfully, for a radical school reformer, you're the most conservative woman I know. Chapter 18 In Deborah's school, in the meantime, affairs had drawn to a climax. The moment had come for the city to say whether her new experiment should be dropped the following year, or allowed to go on and develop. There came a day of sharp suspense when Deborah's friends and enemies on the Board of Education sat down to discuss and settle her fate. They were at it for several hours, but late in the afternoon they decided not only to let her go on the next year, but to try her idea in four other schools and place her in charge with ample funds. 
The long strain came to an end at last in a triumph beyond her wildest hopes. When the news arrived she relaxed, grew limp and laughed and cried a little, and her father felt her tremble as he held her a moment in his arms. Now, Baird, he thought, your chance has come. For God's sake, take it while it's here. But in place of Baird that afternoon came men and women from the press, and friends and fellow workers. The doorbell and the telephone kept ringing almost incessantly. Why couldn't they leave her a moment's peace? Roger buried himself in his study. Later, when he was called to dinner, he found that Alan was there, too. But at first the conversation was all upon Deborah's victory. Flushed with success, for the moment engrossed in the wider field she saw ahead, she had not a thought for anything else. But after dinner the atmosphere changed. To hear me talk, she told them, you'd think the whole world depended on me, and on my school and my ideas. Me, me, me. And it has been me all winter long. What a time I've given both of you. She grew repentant and grateful, first to her father and then to Alan, and then more and more to Alan, with her happy eyes on his. And with a keen, worried look at them both, Roger rose and left the room. Baird was leaning forward. He had both her hands in his own. Well, he asked, will you marry me now? Her eyes were looking straight into his. They kept moving slightly, searching his. Her wide, sensitive lips were tightly compressed, but did not quite hide their quivering. When she spoke, her voice was low and a little queer and breathless. Do you want any children, Alan? Yes. So do I, and with children, what of my work? I don't want to stop your work. If you marry me, we'll go right on. You see, I know you, Deborah. I know you've always grown like that by risking what you've got today for something more tomorrow. I've never taken a risk like this. I tell you this time it's no risk, because you're a grown woman, formed. I'm not making a saint of you. You're no angel down among the poor, because you feel it's your duty in life. It's your happiness, your passion. You couldn't neglect them if you tried. But the time, she asked him quickly, where shall I find the time for it all? A man finds time enough, he answered, even when he's married. But I'm not a man, I'm a woman, she said, and in a low voice which thrilled him, a woman who wants a child of her own. His lean, muscular right hand contracted sharply upon hers. She winced, drew back a little. Oh, I'm sorry, he whispered. Then he asked her again, Will you marry me now? She looked suddenly up. Let's wait a while, please. It won't be long. I'm in love with you, Alan. I'm sure of that now. And I'm not drawing back. I'm not afraid. Oh, I want you to feel I'm not running away. What I want to do is to face this square. It may be silly and foolish, but, you see, I'm made like that. I want a little longer. I want to think it out by myself. When Alan had gone, she came in to her father, and her radiant expression made him bounce up from his chair. By George, he cried, he asked you, yes, and you've taken him? No. Roger gasped. Look here, he demanded angrily, what's the matter? Are you mad? She threw back her head and laughed at him. No, I'm not, I'm happy. What the devil about, he snapped. We're going to wait a bit, that's all, till we're sure of everything, she cried. Then, said Roger disgustedly, you're smarter than your father is. I'm sure of nothing. 
Nothing. I have never been sure in all my days. If I'd waited, you'd never been born. Oh, dearie, she begged him smilingly, please don't be so unhappy just now. I've a right to be, said Roger. I see my house agog with this, in a turmoil, in a turmoil. But again he was mistaken. It was, in fact, astonishing how the old house quieted down. There came again one of those peaceful times when his home to Roger's senses seemed to settle deep, grow still, and gather itself together. Day by day he felt more sure that Deborah was succeeding in making her work fit into her swiftly deepening passion for a full, happy woman's life. And why shouldn't they live here, Alan and she? The thought of this dispelled the cloud which hung over the years he saw ahead. How smoothly things were working out! The monstrous new buildings around his house seemed to him to draw back, as though balked of their prey. On the mantel in Roger's study, for many years, a bronze figure there, the thinker, huge and naked, forbidding in its crouching pose, the heavy chin on one clenched fist, had brooded down upon him and in the years that had been so dark it had been a figure of despair. Often he had looked up from his chair and grimly met its frowning gaze, but Roger seldom looked at it now, and even when it caught his eye it had little effect upon him. It appeared to brood less darkly, for though he did not think it out, there was this feeling in his mind, there is to be nothing startling in this quiet house of mine, no crashing deep, calamity here only the steadily deepening love between a grown man and a woman mature both sensible strong people with a firm control of their destinies he felt so sure of this affair for now her tension once relaxed with the success which had come to her after so many long hard years a new deborah was revealed more human in her yieldings she let Alan take her off on the wildest little sprees uptown and out into the country. To Roger she seemed younger, more warm and joyous and more free. He loved to hear her laugh these nights, to catch the glad new tones in her voice. There is to be no tragedy here. So, certain of this union and wistful for all he felt it would bring, Roger watched its swift approach, and when the news came he was sure he'd been right because it came so quietly. It's settled, dear, at last it's sure. Alan and I are to be married. She was standing by his chair. Roger reached up and took her hand. I'm glad. You'll be very happy, my child. She bent over and kissed him, and putting his arm around her, he drew her down on the side of his chair. Now tell me all your plans, he said, and her answer brought him a deep peace. We're going abroad for the summer, and then, if you'll have us, we want to come here. Roger abruptly shut his eyes. By George, Deborah, he said, you do have a way of getting right into the heart of things. His arm closed about her with new strength, and he felt all his troubles flying away. What a time we'll have! What a rich new life! Her deep, sweet voice was a little unsteady. Listen, dearie, how quiet it is! and for some moments nothing was heard but the sober tick-tick of the clock on the mantel. I wonder what we're going to hear. And they thought of new voices in the house. End of section 6 Recording by James Carson